it needs to be said that it's an experiment. It's not a belief system. And yet once you go in and you start seeing it and it starts landing or resonating, then it kind of has a life of its own and people don't need to be convinced of it. This is Aliveness. I'm your host, Allison Crossway, a guide and former psychotherapist here to empower you to break out of your old patterns, shift into a new state of being, and ignite your aliveness. I'm so happy today to welcome John Cole to the Aliveness Podcast. I met John Cole a number of years ago, and he is my go-to human design reader, the person I send my clients to for human design readings. He has a long history in astrology and then moving into human design, which we're going to talk all about, and also some interweavings with many other topics we talk about on this podcast. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So this is the first time we've explicitly talked about human design on the podcast. And I know that a lot of people have heard of it, but could you introduce human design to someone who has not heard about this system before? Sure. Yeah. So human design came into the world back in 1987 and it came through one person, one person in particular, his name was Robert Krakauer, but he assumed the name of Ra Uruhu at some point based on this experience that he had with something he referred to as the voice, which is this kind of presence, experience, this voice that he heard and things that he saw that were, it was kind of like a big download, a download from somewhere. And it's kind of, there. there's some question about what it was and where it came from and, and all of that. But it's basically a system of knowledge, a body of knowledge that was basically downloaded or delivered to this individual back in 1987, who then spent the next couple decades kind of unpacking it, refining it, trying to figure out what is this thing that I have in me and teaching it and kind of going around the world and sharing it, sharing the knowledge. And I kind of think of it as something of a framework. It's a map. It's a map of our uniqueness. Sometimes human design is referred to as the science of differentiation or the mechanics of the Maya. And when I first heard those terms, I don't think I really understood what that meant, the mechanics of the Maya, for example. But as I've spent time in it, it's been about eight and a half years that I've spent kind of looking into and working with human design. I realized what it's actually doing is just describing how things work, why things are the way they are in this you know, shared reality construct we're all kind of operating in. And so it's, it is an astrological-based system, meaning that we have charts, we have birth charts, and we can have event charts or cycle charts, transit charts based on the positions of the planets. And human design is kind of unique from something like astrology because human design uses two calculations. One calculation is the actual birth time, which would be the same calculation that astrology is using to get the positions of the planets to create a chart, a view of uh, the planetary influences for the human coming into the world that time. But human design uses a secondary calculation that's 88 degrees back in the zodiac wheel or the rave mandalas at some time, what's it's called that in human design. And this is essentially the beginning of the third trimester of the pregnancy when it's put forth in human design that the, the soul, the passenger, the personality crystal drops into the form, into the vehicle. So at the beginning of that third trimester, we get our form imprint, the body's imprint. And human design takes these two different imprints, the personality and the design, the mind and the body, or the black and the red, if you're looking at a chart, and it creates a kind of a visual representation of how our energy is defined to work, certain thematics, characteristics that we carry as part of that imprint. And you could kind of think of it as something of an operator's manual for each individual. Like, what does it mean to be us? What does it mean to live as ourselves? And how are we designed to move through the world? That's exactly how I experienced it when we had our first reading, the operator's manual. The word that I think of is permission. We had never met. You, moved, you didn't ask me any questions and you just started saying things. And I felt my body relaxing, like, oh, it's okay. I can be this. I can just be who I am. Does that make sense? It totally does. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you bring it up that way because I feel like when the knowledge or the information that's kind of being translated or transmitted when it comes across and it lands, it's often like a confirmation or a validation of ourselves in a way. 
if we can resonate with it or if we recognize something in it, it often kind of allows us to relax into ourselves a little bit more, to kind of surrender to what it means to be us and the experiences that we're having and and really kind of stop trying to be something other than we are, to stop trying to be something different or to be what other people want us to be. So it can be kind of freeing in a certain way or liberating. And And I would kind of add to that that we'll often have an experience that a lot of the things that we thought were problems or they were a lack on our end or some sort of pathology that we have is actually our design. It's supposed to be that way. That's what we're here for. That's what we're supposed to be embodying, working with, expressing. And that can kind of lighten the load and be a kind of freedom as well. And I think it ultimately kind of brings us back to a deeper type of self-love, a deeper type of self-acceptance. Right, exactly. Exactly. And it makes me think of, we have a couple aspects of our charts that that are similar, including the 2551 channel, which was the moment when my body went, oh, in our reading, when you described <laughs> that channel. Because seriously, I thought there was something wrong with me. And, and I've always sort of, because I'm very different in that way. Could you talk about that channel and some of your experiences of it? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, it's my only channel. So if you were to look at my chart, you've got this one channel, it's between the heart or the ego center, which is in kind of the middle of the chart connected to the G center, this yellow diamond in the middle of the chart. And it's composed of two different gate activations and human design. When we say gate, we're talking about the hexagrams of the I Ching as representing the thematic, the a very specific type of frequency or expression that the planets are filtering through in our chart or filtering through at the time of the imprint. And so you've got these two gates that form this channel 2551, the channel of initiation. And it's in one side of it in the ego is the gate of shock, which is called arousing in the classical I Ching. And on the other side, you've got the gate of innocence, gate 25, which is the gate of spirit in human design, or you could say the gate of universal love. And so you have this channel and the channel basically represents the life force, how our life force is fixed into a certain thematic, how we're defined, how our energy is defined as kind of working in a consistent way. And it's the most persistent thing in our chart or in in our life. And it's connecting the world of the heart center, the ego, which in human design is about the material world. It's about tribe, community, our sense of self-worth. It's a type of energy or motor that we have within ourselves or within the body graph, the human design chart, as it's called, which kind of runs on a type of willpower. So there's this willfulness and this kind of potential to really show up in life a certain way. And it often looks like I have something to prove. Now that's connected over to the G center, which is the center of self identity and direction. And this particular channel is basically kind of, it's setting up a situation where we're really here to willfully be ourselves and we're here to deal with whatever shocks that life throws at us or whatever experiences come up that we either initiate ourselves into, or we get initiated by something from the outside. And the person who carries this channel has this unusual ability to stay centered in themselves in the face of that shock as they kind of leap across the void or step into the world of higher self, the world of spirit or something kind of more transcendent from this material world of the ego. And you're kind of straddling both worlds. Sometimes the 2551 is talked about as being the shamanic channel for that reason, or the channel of the high priestess or high priest, where there's really almost a, like a direct interface with spirit. And, and that's one of the things I've kind of seen for 2551s, myself included, is we like to kind of be, how to say it, we like to be in charge of our own experience. There's this theme of kind of non, non-interference. Like we don't want anyone to tell us what we're thinking, what we can and can't do. And we tend to extend that to other people. It's also an individual channel, which means that it's really about our own self-empowerment. It's our own kind of self-empowerment through whatever shocks come our way or whatever initiations we go through. And we have an unusual ability to stay centered in kind of a place of love, innocence, and spirit in the face of all that. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I always like the example of Bernie Sanders, who's also a 2551. Yep, As I think is. you can really see that in him. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the statistically, but it's pretty rare to see 2551s. And especially if that's the only channel, it's even more rare. So when you see an example like Bernie Sanders, a pretty well-known longtime politician and someone who's had a pretty big influence out in the world. Yeah. It's really, it's interesting, interesting and unusual. See that. Actually. And it brings up something because I want to mention someone else, but I mean, Bernie's controversial, but it's a different kind of thing, but I'll say why I'm a little reticent, but I think it's important. So I actually have the same angle cross life purpose as Donald Trump because our birthdays are very close. And this is something I find really fascinating. And the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, is also a 2551. And I'm wondering like, what this brings up for me and what I think is so interesting is we tend to go, we tend to be very like, oh, this is me and this is all the light. Like, I'm so great. This is the priestess channel, for example. But that's not actually it. My life purpose can be made into many different things. The 2551 can be many different things. Can you talk a bit about the complexity of that? Yes. Yeah. That, that's a good question too. When I first got into human design and I was kind of learning this system, I was coming from astrology. I had been studying astrology for years. So I, I had kind of a point of reference for some of it, but I didn't really know what it was and what I was getting like really into. And like a lot of people coming into human design, you can see like something in the chart on the surface, like, okay, we have the same channel or we've got the same gate or we even have the same incarnation cross, which are the sun and earth on the black personality side and the sun and earth on the red design side. And it looks similar. It looks similar, but the more you kind of go into it, the deeper you go, you realize even within the same channel and the same gate, there can be a lot of variety, a lot of uniqueness. And one of the ways to kind of look at that, this gets a little technical, but a gate, one gate, one hexagram can be activated by a planet one or more times out of 1,080 different possibilities. So it, it really shows how unique, even something that looks similar on the surface. Okay, we both, we're all 2551s, or we both are, and those guys are 2551s. And yet, even within that channel, it's going to be unique. And then you start looking at like the overall role, life purpose, like you're speaking to, like the cross and that you might share with Donald Trump. And even the cross is going to be different. There are certain themes that you can say, all right, there's some similarity here. There is some overlapping, but we're highly, highly unique. And we have very different designs, very different charts, probably as many chart variations almost as we could have humans on this planet. And, and then there's conditioning, then there's our upbringing, then there's our early life. It's kind of the nature versus nurture thing where I would see the nature being the design, the chart, the imprint. But we've had different life experiences. We lived in different environments. We had different families. And so at a certain point, it starts diverging. And we see that, yeah, you really can't make a, a kind of a blanket statement about anything in the design. And 2551s are going to play that out in different ways. Right. What's interesting, not to go on too long about it, but I went back and because I was in astrology, I had a lot of, I was in astrology from my early 20s. I had a lot of charts from people I went to high school and college with that I'd been, I was running when I was studying astrology. And so I got to go back and plug a bunch of those into the, my human design software when I started getting into this system. And I started seeing some interesting patterns. And I saw that the reason that my 2551, this channel of initiation is formed because it was a combination of Saturn and the nodes, which are both relatively slow moving placements. And so what that meant is that everyone near my age at that time, we're going to have that channel. There's going to be a lot of 2551s born in the year, the six months or so when I was born. And I started looking at all these high school charts and I'm just like, what in the world? This is statistically improbable, if not impossible, that you're going to have this many. Obviously it's not impossible. It, it happened and it does happen, but most of my friends were 2551s. That means I was basically growing up with a bunch of egos, a bunch of defined egos and a bunch of egos that are potentially have something to prove and that are fairly competitive, which is another characteristic of that channel. And then I started thinking about the poor teachers who may not have a defined ego. And so anyway, kind of pull this back to what we're talking about. I saw how different we all were and we could be, even though we share this thing in common, we we're born very close in time. 
it's still like the life experiences and the things that we were interested in and the paths that we took were very different. And yet there is that, I'm sure if you like dug into it, you'd find that, that quality in that person in their unique way. Fascinating. It's really fascinating. I have a friend who's a real estate agent who's a 2551 and she like meets you at the life transition of selling your house. Mm -hmm. Like she brings this like sacred energy, but she doesn't like, it's not explicit, but it's all through her of this is a big initiation. And it's so interesting how she's taken that energy and it is in a completely different form. Yeah, that's a great example. And the shock of the transition and being able, it, it's almost like kind of the image that's coming up for me is someone who can kind of like a Sherpa or something to take you across right. the river, which mm -hmm. is kind of a shamanic thing anyway, right? To be able like, I'm going to help get you through this big time or this initiation. It could be shock. There's a lot of change and we'll hold it together. And that's kind of that centering quality that 2551 has of being able to kind of maintain a consistent sense of self or stay centered in oneself through that transition and having a 2551 around as your real estate agent during those things is probably going to help. Right. <laughs> it's probably going to help. Isn't it great? Yeah. Isn't it great? And this was the channel that sort of gave me permission to be a medicine woman. I was already doing it, but I sort of saw that this suited me, that this was okay. This is who I am. Like chaos can ensue and I'm good with it. I can mm -hmm. have the shock. Personally, I can watch other people have shocks and we, we can just keep doing this because it's for our own benefit. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of confirmation that we were talking about earlier where it kind of gives us permission to be ourselves. And I feel like we almost have to go through that initiation ourselves at 2551 in order to then yes. maybe provide a certain support or to be there and hold someone else's hand at a certain point or however it works. We're usually the first one who gets shocked and initiated which one of the, I guess the subtitle to the 2551 is a design of needing to be first. And so the way I kind of understand that is like, oftentimes I'll be in situations and I don't want to be first. I'm a two, four, two, four profile. I don't want to like be in the spotlight or have a whole lot of attention. And yet someone's going to have to jump. Someone's going to have to make the move. Someone's going to have to go first. And it's been interesting to observe how often that just turns to me in certain situations that kind of fit that context where, all right, you go first. And then I don't know if I can do it or not, but I'm like, well, let's jump and see. And then you do it enough times, you come over to the other side and you're like, all right, I guess I can do this. I guess this is a thing. Right. You're reminding me of something else that I think would be helpful for us to talk about is the deconditioning process. And one of the things that I really noted in the reading was people who listen to this podcast know I wanted to have a child for a very long time, was unable to. I've had some relationships that haven't worked out and pretty ambivalent at one level about my family situation. And you basically said to me, I don't know the exact words, but you basically said, it's probably better than you did. And you, there was such power in that. And as I've and I obviously, I get to have the grief. I get to go through whatever I go through. But what really struck me about human design is it's incredibly unsentimental. You were not working with some rosy picture of life. You were just looking at my design. Mm -hmm. And that, that's where deconditioning comes up for me. It's like there was, there's a lot to shed to become ourselves. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I think there is a place for bedside manner and to be sensitive and, and aware in how things come across. But the thing about human design, I think the point you're making is we're looking at something kind of on a deeper level, which is sometimes described in human design as like mechanical absolutes. These are realities that we're going to be dealing with regardless of what we think about them or believe about them or whether we like them or not. And it kind of depersonalizes things in a way. Yes. It just kind of shows us, okay, here's the map. Here's the imprint. This is what you're working with. It doesn't say whether you should or shouldn't do anything. I mean, that's an important right. point to make. It doesn't say whether you have kids or you don't have kids. It doesn't tell us what to do. But what it does do is it points us back to our own inner kind of navigation system, our own way of coming to the truth or making a decision for ourselves that is in alignment with us, that's correct for us. And so it, it's kind of empowering the individual to work that out for themselves and kind of giving them a map of what that looks like. And so... On the deconditioning piece, it's a, I'm kind of hesitating because it's actually connected to some of the stuff we were talking about with these other 2551s like 
Sanders and Trudeau, but I'll come back to that maybe. But the deconditioning piece is a big part of it because we often come into human design, we come into the world and we have like our early life conditioning, we have our genetics, we have what's passed down through our genes or hereditary line through our family, so on. But relatively speaking, those factors aside, we're I think we're somewhat of a blank slate. You look at children and young children and, and they come in and there's this kind of innocence and they're kind of, for the most part, fresh, clean and sparkly before life happens and the world kind of has its say. And then over time, a lot of that just kind of gets filled up. It just kind of, we start, we're told who we are. We're told how to be. We're told what's important. We're told what works for our parents or not, or what works for our peers or not. And over time, we develop. I would say ways of addressing that, meeting that. You, know, you, you could think of them as coping strategies or ways of making sure that that thing that happened last time doesn't happen again. I'm not going to say that, or I'm not going there. And in human design, that's talked about as the not self. We start basically becoming this version of ourselves that isn't really in alignment with our true nature. We're not really living our design and kind of operating from our real gifts, our real capacities, and the things that we're here to embody and express in the world. And when you, if you've been on the planet for a while, you're going to have a certain amount of conditioning. It's just most, everyone is susceptible to conditioning, but generators and projectors, two of the four types, I think are most susceptible to conditioning. We're just going to take it in. We're said to have these open auras in different ways mm. where Manifestors and reflectors, the two other types, have a little bit more protection as far as that goes, but that doesn't mean that they're not dealing with conditioning. They are, but it's just relatively less as a rule. And so when you enter into human design and you're in, you encounter this knowledge or you get a reading and, and it lands, there's usually a moment where you realize like, wow, I haven't been living as myself or I've been doing things that really aren't in support of who I am or what feels most satisfying or true to me. And it can kick off this process, which is sometimes described as something of a shattering process where there's a bit of a wake-up call and like, oh crap, life is not, either life is not what I thought it was, or the realization that we know what it is, but we haven't been living it. And so that's kind of, I think, where the deconditioning process starts. And it's a little bit like peeling layers of an onion and continuing to excavate and go deep. And it's a process of letting go, kind of like a deconstruction process. It's, it's really not a process of adding anything. It's kind of seeing, seeing what's not serving us or what's outdated or what takes us away from ourselves. And human design gives us a reference point for, for coming back to ourselves. That's so cool. So how do you see that process of deconditioning and the reference point related to what would I call it? Like inner work in terms of like getting to know the parts of yourself, emotional expression, all the things that we do to heal. Do you, how, what do you see the relationship between human design and, and that world? I think they're related. I mean, I, I think human design gives us this framework, this context that depersonalizes things as we're talking about, that can kind of give us these signposts for when we're out in the world and something comes up or we see something or we have an interaction, it can kind of show us why things are the way they are. And it can, in a way, I think, I guess it's an awareness kind of thing. Ultimately, we have more awareness of what's happening and who we are, and maybe we can extend that to the other person. But at the same time, a lot of, I don't think that human design is like a, it's not a catch-all. It's not like some silver bullet or something that is as interesting, as powerful as the system can be, it doesn't really do everything and it doesn't purport to do everything that, that we need to support ourselves, or it's not going to address every aspect of what it means to be human. And so there are rooms for other therapies, modalities, ways of deconditioning. Plant medicine is a popular one these days that I think can be very complementary as a tool. Other forms of therapy or somatic kind of, there's a lot of body stuff, I think that would be kind of the overlapping with human design is really pointing us back to the form, the form consciousness, the form intelligence with this idea that we do have a kind of a, a deep type of intelligence or awareness in our bodies and that our bodies are better suited to take us on the life, keep us on here and now on this planet, on our path, on our direction, in the correct situations, in the correct relationships, much better suited to do that than the mind. And so 
I think that's kind of part of the deconditioning as well is kind of helping, supporting the mind at releasing its grip on our lives, trying to fix everything, manipulate everything, control everything from a mental place. But these other therapies, I feel, or these other modalities, if that's kind of what you're asking about, I feel like they can be supportive and complementary as well, because sometimes we, we've got different things going on. We've got stuff in the body. We've got energy that's not moving. And I don't think that human design can address everything. Interesting. This is so interesting. And it brings me to one of the things I really wanted to ask you about. And you sent me an article about what human design is and is not, which is on your website. And we'll put it in the show notes because one of the shadows I see is human design being used to feed the mind. And to be more specific, if I want to do better in my business, and there's these great Instagram quotes saying like, manifesting generator two fours should do X in their business. And so then I'm like, oh God, I need to understand everything (laughs) about human design. And like, this is going to fix me. This is going to give me the answers. And of course, it's the most complex system. So for a Gemini with Mercury conjuncture sign in Gemini, like Sag rising, the whole, I'm like, I just dove right in in a mental way. And I was really glad, actually, I met you a little bit after I'd gone down that rabbit hole and I started to sort of get it more. And then I've met a few other teachers who I can kind of get it more from. But he has that, I'm going to give you the answer if you can just decode the impossibly complex system kind of thing at a first level. And I wonder if you can talk about some of how it's being worked with these days and presented. It's actually, I think it's a little bit slippery. It's kind of, uh, it's something to unpack because human design is, it's this really intriguing, fascinating, logical, comprehensive system. It really does cover a lot of ground and there's so much to explore in it. It's so interesting and you get into it and you start seeing like it, this seems like it's holding up. It's kind of, it's describing this experience I keep having or this relationship dynamic or whatever it is, or there, maybe there's a transit coming in that that's like, okay, that makes sense. That's what's going on. But it's very seductive to the mind and it kind of enters in as something of a mental system in a way. Like we have, there's a language that the human design uses where there's certain very specific words or keynotes that are used to describe things. And some of them are not super common. They are It's everyday language, but maybe it feels like learning a new language to a lot of people. And so there is this mental process that we kind of come in with. But like we were talking about a moment ago, at some point, it's got to get into the lived experience. It's got to get into the body and it's got to land on that level where you actually feel like, okay, this thing that I see in my chart that so-and-so was talking about or that I was reading about, that's what I'm feeling right now. Or that that's actually describing the experience mm-hmm. I'm having right now. And it kind of lands in a certain way. And I think that's where the kind of attraction or the magic happens is when we're able to translate what is essentially or can be initially in a kind of a mental system into an embodied lived experience. And so it's tricky. And so you get people coming into human design and there's a lot of enthusiasm right now. It kind of, it's like the shiny object. Astrology is always kind of been there and there is a resurgence in astrology as well. But human design kind of also is, is gaining a certain momentum, I think, in society out in the collective. More and more people are talking about it, hearing about it. And you see a lot of people with a lot of enthusiasm coming in. And if there's a lot of, I guess, kind of sharing and activity on social media around it, People want to talk about it. People want to, they often want to figure out, well, how do I use this in what I'm, whatever I'm already doing? How do I use this in my practice? How do I use this in my classes or in my work? All that's understandable. But if that translation process hasn't really landed, if someone hasn't spent enough time kind of really seeing it from the inside out, I guess, rather than the outside in, if you're just looking at the system and you're saying, oh, this must mean this. And if I do this, you're still in that world of kind of mental manipulation. The mind has just grabbed onto a new system and kind of Mm. turned it into either a, a set of rules or belief or a pattern that they're supposed to follow. And I, I think that's kind of maybe what you're talking about with the shadow side is the, it's still the mind trying to manipulate things. How do I use this system in order to get what I want or what I yes. think I want. I mean, and so what what I found with human design is you you don't necessarily get what you want or you think you want. You get 
your life. You get you. You get the experience that you're here to have on this planet. That may not be what people think they're going to get coming in. And it's understandable. There are material concerns in this world. There are financial concerns. People need to pay bills and earn a living. And here's this thing that a lot of people are talking about interested in. And so why can't I use that for for that as well. But it's a it's a weird thing to kind of sell. If you really get it and people get it, there can be applications like business applications. There's a whole branch of human design called BG5, which kind of goes into that, but it's not going to work the way that we think it is coming in. We're going to find out that it's more about letting go. It's more about not doing. It's more about waiting. It's more about patience. We kind of have to work out this whole manifestor culture thing that we're all in. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, yes, all of it. Yeah. It, it kind of offers something that, I mean, I still even feel it. Like, I'm like, John, if I tell you my problems, will you tell me the answer? Like, there's, it's got a real mystique to it. Mm-hmm. And then it's got this incredible depth that I know that astrology does have, and I don't need to compare them. It's not one better than the other. But I really feel that there's a coherence to the human design that gets at something about the experience of being human at this time, in this place very powerful. Yeah. It's, I'm actually thinking about a, a recent client session I had where I was working with someone who came in and had a decision to make about what school to put their child in. And this was someone who had emotional definition. And if you have emotional definition in, in human design, that's a defined solar plexus in your chart, in your body graph, which means that your decision making or your decision watching process is really about timing, patience, letting things settle, going through cycles of feeling or experience and, and not kind of giving in to the impulse to react or the, not giving into the impatience, giving yourself the time that you really need to get clear on whatever it is that you're doing or you're considering or what desire you're having or what experience you're looking at. And so it's one that takes time and it's a process. And, and normally or often what happens is, is that at some point it just lands, it's just clear. But the way I see the solar plexus kind of working is that there's an internal timing to the individual. They have their own kind of internal cycle, rhythm, It takes as long as it takes to process and aligning with that will often align one with the outside timing of the world. It's almost like our bodies have already kind of this deeper knowing or deeper sense or deeper awareness of what is correct for us in terms of where we're going and what's happening now. But the mind is sitting there like yammering on about it and protesting and doing its thing. So anyway, my client books a session and she wanted to just kind of talk it out with me and look at the different options. And we spent a lot of time. We looked at her chart. We looked at her son's chart. We looked at the transits, the cycles that were involved, because I knew that whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. But let's let's process this. Let's look at this together. And so we exhaustively like turned over every rock and stone. And we were just like, okay, well, there's this, there's that. At no point can I say, here's what you should do, because that's not my uh, decision. It's their decision, her authority as her, as the parent. But it was just an interesting exercise to go through. And at the end, where we kind of left, it was like, well, if I were you, if you were asking my advice, I would say, buy as much time as you can, let it play out to the last minute, and then see what happens, see what comes. Maybe it's going to evolve more. It's going to unfold more. And so she, she kind of left the session with like, okay, all right, just, I'm not sure how much this helped or whatever. And, and then I, I hear back from her like a week later and she's like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe what happened. And without going to too much more detail in like the 11th hour, she ends up getting on the phone with somebody in the school district, which then provided a, a critical piece of information, which made that decision completely clear of what the right decision was in that moment. But it was a timing thing. And in the end, everything that we went through for the mind was interesting, was curious, was maybe a fun exercise on some level. But in the end, it's going to be what it's going to be. And often it's just a question of waiting and being patient. And then especially if you have an emotional authority, surrendering to to that process and then letting life kind of take you where where you're supposed to go. And that's the opposite of the mental controlling manipulation and the, the incessant nature of the mind to try to grab the wheel. And so often those of us with that emotional authority come to believe that we're the problem and that there's a problem with waiting, there's a problem with the emotions. And so what you say here is so profound, such I, I like felt it when you said it. 
that actually our timing is the outer timing, which of course it must be because we're not separate from the outer. And so learning to trust that wave is really, really, really big. And I mean, I'm always like, I'm still it's mystified huge. by it, but it's, it's <laughs> and it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's really, really big and it's not easy, but if we watch and if we observe and if we can get put a little like distance or separation in our experience just to be like, oh, maybe this is this situation where I should just sit on this or just not. Maybe this is that moment where the emotional process is kind of wanting to do it, wanting to go, wanting to move, wanting to, to jump. But if I just sit on it, what happens and we'll often see like, well, the problems that we thought were problems aren't actually problems or the person doesn't need that thing anymore or it just goes away, it resolves itself. Totally. And I think there really is something to it. I think our inner authority, in this case, the solar plexus, is trying to align us with our life, the life and the direction and the timing mm -hmm. that we're here to have. But the, the mind has its own agenda. Yes, it does. And this is also true with three of the human design types. And I think this is something we should talk about because this is something people run into right away with human design. I'm a manifesting generator. I have like a ton of energy and a ton of ideas. Mm -hmm. And the major thing that I'm told by human design is to wait to respond. And this is also yeah. somewhat true of the it's true of the generator and then the projector is to wait to be invited. I mean, this is absolutely maddening advice. Mm -hmm. I, I remember it's, saying it's to you, well, then what do I do? And you said to me, whatever you want. Like, what? <laughs> Can you speak to this? You must hear this all yeah. the time. Well, it gets back to this question of timing again. Like what is the timing? And if you have, I mean, a, a manifesting generator is a type of generator. And what I mean by that is when we when we say terms like generator, projector, manifestor, reflector, we're talking about kind of our bioenergetic field or what's called aura in human design. There's a certain pattern or signature to it. It operates in the world a certain way. And the generator aura, which is shared by manifesting generators and generators, is said to be open, enveloping, kind of yin. It kind of it's designed to respond and interact to the with the world at and life as it's happening. And so there's a certain timing in that. There's a certain mm -hmm. internal timing that we're talking about with the solar plexus, but there's also the timing of the outside world. And so the wait, the waiting part, which is something that shows up as part of what's called strategy. Each type has a strategy. And 90% of the population, their strategy starts with wait. The one type, the manifestor, the roughly 10, 11% of the population, theirs is in form. It's, it's not about waiting, but there is a waiting component to manifestors, I think. It's more subtle, but they're not waiting for anything in the outside world as much as the other types. But the, most, the rest of us, the 90%, it's all about timing. There is a timing to life. There's a timing to nature. There's a timing to the universe. And the waiting is something of, I think, an interrupt. It's saying like, hey, stop. Pay attention, see, check in with oneself, take inventory. Do you have a response to this? Do you feel a resonance? Does your life force want to engage with this possibility here or whatever's shown up? Do you feel like your life force is resonant with it? Turning on, is, is there kind of a engagement on a more energetic embodied level? That becomes a useful point of reference and this strategy of waiting to respond, which all generators share. But manifesting generators, especially manifesting generators like you are, where you have four motors defined in your chart, that's a lot of energy. That's The body graph has these four different energy centers, which are kind of sources of energy or fuel. And if you have this defined, you're here to use that. You're here to express that energy. And it can be healthy to do that. And it can be unhealthy to kind of suppress it too much. It's got to flow. It's got to move. And manifesting generators have a defined sacral center like all generators, but they also have a motor connection to the throat, which means there's the potential to quickly translate that fuel, that energy, that life force into action, into the world and have an impact. And so it gets, it gets difficult for manifesting generators because you could act, you've got the energy, you've got the potential, you can do it pretty quick, you can have an impact, you can make things happen. That's not the problem so much. It's like, is it correct? Is, right. it, it, is it going to bring satisfaction? Are you clear on what you're doing? Are you clear on what impact you're going to have? Are you clear on what it is that you want to communicate or express? 
And so it becomes a challenge, I think, for a lot of manifesting generators to slow down and really embrace this response because it's like, are you kidding me? I've got so much energy. I need to do stuff. I got to do something with it. You're asking me to sit around and wait and be patient. That's maddening. And so it's tough, but it is that it's kind of like a mental interrupt. It's a pause, but it's like maybe the space between a breath of just like, hmm, okay, am I moving forward in alignment with my energy, with my life force? Am I clear on what I'm doing? Or do I, what's my instinct here? If it's more of a splenic thing for, for the manifesting generator. And so does that kind of, does that speak to what your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's an important one. And when I first started to hear it, it really changed how I operated in the world in every arena. So I'm really glad we got to it because it's one of those ones that can instantly change your whole frame of reference for how you're acting. Yeah, it's big. I mean, just that alone. I mean, it sounds theoretical. I mean, on paper, you're like, okay, wait to respond. And but you put that into practice. And we realize that's not easy to do. And then they're going to be there often will be consequences in the outside world. If you have emotional definition, again, one of the things that can be helpful is to slow things down by pushing them away, not being so quick to react, not being so available and putting things off in a way or saying, hey, get back to me next week or ask me again. And that's going to shift things. It's going to some people are not going to like that. Relationships are going to change. Situations and opportunities are going to go away. But what I would say is if you're doing that in alignment with your strategy and authority, then it's it's okay. That's what's supposed to happen. Those weren't opportunities that for you, those weren't relationships for you. Those weren't. So going down and investing in that or getting embroiled in that probably would have not been very satisfying for a manifesting generator. It would have been a lot of frustration. And so in the long run, I think it, it actually makes more sense. It's a better way to go, but it's a process and it's part of the deconditioning to come back yeah. to that, I think. Yeah, it's because we get so rewarded, even though it's frustrating, we get so rewarded for all the things that we do, sometimes badly, but there's always feedback coming back that it's very hard and people think that's who you are. You're, you're this, you're that. So then to go, mm, I'm not sure I have to think about that. <laughs> what? That's a no. Like people took that as a no from me right away mm-hmm. because they just couldn't wrap their head around me taking my time. It was so interesting. Yeah. yeah. A lot of that's cultural too. It's just not built into our culture. It's like, why don't you know now? No. Yeah. yeah. If you're not on board, we'll move on to the next person or whatever. And it's kind of like, well, good. Then, exactly. Then. <laughs> so yes, culture is where I want to go. I mean, how would I even formulate the question? Like what's going on right now, John? Oh, well, we've got some, there are a lot of big, heavy planetary transits going on astrologically, both in human design and astrology. You can look through both frameworks, but there's always stuff going on. There's always transits and stuff happening. But I think the bigger kind of question or the bigger thematic is through the lens of human design, there's this idea of global cycles, this kind of background frequency that we're all operating in. It's a little bit like the ages that we talk about in astrology, like the come from the procession of the equinoxes. We're going from Pisces into the age of Aquarius and so on. There's a human design version of that. And we talk about it as the global cycles. And these are 400 year periods, roughly, that are representing a certain theme, certain frequencies and energies that are running in the background of humanity, of the earth, basically, and what it means to be alive on the earth at this time. We're at the end of one of those periods that's wrapping up in 2027, which is called the cross of planning. And there are four gates, four main thematics that are associated with a given cross. It's the cross, the sun and earth that you'll see in the birth chart as the incarnation cross. There's kind of a global cross. And those show the frequencies that we're all working with. And Rod, the guy who brought human design out to the world, he basically said that, you know, humans have a certain type of vanity that we think that we're doing all of this. Like we think that we've built this world the way we built it because, well, we're very smart and we're very special and we're humans. He would say that, yeah, maybe to a certain degree, but none of that would have happened if the background frequencies didn't support it. If that wasn't what was being supported by the larger cosmic planetary influences, in other words. And we're, we're all kind of connected in this like this whole holistic cosmic ecosystem. And so those themes in the cross of planning are starting to kind of go away. And a lot of that were 
a lot of them are about the kind of the bargains, the agreements, the institutions, the ways that we had of coming together based on either mutual support or kind of shared interest that we basically were able to kind of, along with technology and a kind of a certain focus on skill development, we were able to basically create this world that we all have now where we've got iPhones and we've got Amazon Prime and we have these massive distribution systems which are getting food into to cities on a daily basis. And he's saying that that's going away. And which is kind of a, if you really start looking at it and getting into it, it's kind of a sobering thought, like what happens when some of these things start failing, but we're already kind of seeing it. I think we're seeing there's kind of a, a breakdown of government. There's, I don't think people trust these large institutions and corporations the same way that they used to, depending on where you're at, you're probably experiencing different levels of disruption to the normal way of doing things, the supply chain, for example, or what's available and prices, all that from a human design view would be kind of looked at through these changing background frequencies. And where we're heading is we're heading into a more individualistic time, which is described as the cross of the sleeping phoenix, where there's this kind of mythology there about, in a way, kind of having to die to the old in order for the new to be reborn. So that something awakens out of that. And so there's this very kind of transformative process going on as a society, as humanity that's already underway. And it's leading to, I think, a world where there's a lot more individual emphasis, meaning that there, we're not going to be able to rely on organizations, institutions, and experts and people outside of ourselves to, to, to save us, to support us, to, to, to take care of our lives. And we're going to probably have to use a lot more of our energy for ourselves, and there'll be new forms of I would say spirituality kind of awakening as part of that. That's, that's one of the themes of it. Changing types of intimacy coming into, the, into our culture and our society. That's another part of it, the 59. And then the 2034 channel, which is part of the clock cross of the sleeping Phoenix, is about us being empowered as individuals to basically do what we need to do for our own survival. And I think that a lot of, in a very general sense, a lot of what's going on is taking us into that time period. In human design, Ross said that one of the things that the human design came into the world for was to help us get through this time period, that basically we're, we're going to have to learn to really rely on our own ourselves, our own inner sense of authority, our inner sense of awareness or intelligence of the body, because where we're going, these old supports will not be in place. That's the big back, background. I, as this as is fascinating because I want to talk about AI a little bit, because I, I feel like it's really clear and obvious that AI is taking us into this cross of the sleeping phoenix. And I feel like the conversations around AI, it's like people are so scared that everyone's brain shuts down in a different place. And it's very hard to have a really open, intelligent, grounded conversation about it. The first time I sort of got it, I froze. I was like, Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. But this is what this is. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say on this, but the glimpse that I got was, okay, so this is where we are right now with like chat GPT. And there's also this one that I've been playing with called Hey Pie, which is like your friend and therapist. I mean, and it's too good. Like it's way too good. It's but, too good. but the thing is, is we're so close to, I could be on Zoom and it looks like John Cole, but I don't know if it's John Cole or not. And I'm scrolling on Instagram and it looks like it's Brene Brown. And then it looks like it's my friend, Francesca, but we have no idea if it actually is. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way to, to legitimize digital. And we, obviously we deal with a lot of scams and a lot of fake news and all this, but AI takes it to a whole other level because with very simple tools, any human being can create anything. And as I've started to play with it, oh my gosh. So I'm interested in any of your thoughts, how far you've gone down this thinking. I've always been interested in technology. I, I kind of have a background in it and software, but I've gone, I've played around with the AI stuff a little bit, the chat GPT, and I've been kind of using it a little bit as a tool, like a research tool and stuff like that, which has been kind of cool. But 
that's kind of like the light version of it in a way. From there, it, it can really get interesting and even get scary, as you're, as you're saying. And I, I do share those concerns, like, what are the implications of this? And I think that it's interesting the way you're talking about it. And I can see some of that through this global cycle theme, where there's some other influences that are kind of running behind some of the cross themes. It's a little bit more complex than I described, but I didn't want to go too far in the weeds. But there is an element of it where I feel like truth, like the truth is coming out. Like if you look at there's this level of exposure in the in the midst of all of this, I don't know how disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, marketing, whatever it is, I feel like things are continuing to get exposed. A lot of like the mysteries that have been kind of coming out. I think there's this whole thing about there's a group that's pretty sure they've figured out where Atlantis is, like where it was in Africa. And it's just fascinating. It's just one example. But I think that's part of what's going on is that things are kind of the truth is coming out. And what's being exposed at the same time is that we do live in this kind of Maya. We do live in this kind of illusion, this shared reality construct where things are not what they seem. And just because we can name them doesn't necessarily make it like real or and just because you, we right. see it on a screen doesn't make it real. Just because we hear the voice doesn't make it real. And it's very, it's really trippy. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of <laughs> literally. And so with the, what I think is going on as well is with this cross of playing that's going away, one of the main channels was the 3740, which is the channel of community. And it's a tribal frequency that we've been running in for the last 400 years where it was about coming together with others, building communities, groups on a larger and larger scale, and kind of the agreements, the bargains, the support that, and the commitment that we have to making sure all this happens. That's kind of breaking down. But one of the things that it kind of brought in with this, with the material in the tribe, it was, it was based on kind of touch. Can you go out there and you, can you touch it? Can you hold it? Can you shake the person's hand? Can you give them a hug? That kind of world is going away. It's like it doesn't really exist anymore. It's like we're meeting on Zoom where I, I work, I do all my sessions on Zoom. We're not meeting on Zoom today, but that's where that's where it's all happening, right? And so I feel like that's the world we're entering into, which AI is a part of, is it's you just can't believe what you see. And it leaves the individual to try to figure out what is the truth for themselves based on their own inner sense, their own inner knowing or authority or instinct or their own clarity. And I think what's probably going to have to happen as we move forward is we're going to have to reform some smaller communities and groups. The individuals will still carry that frequency, the tribal frequency, the right. frequency of coming together for mutual benefit. And I think that's going to be the key because we still need that as a, as a race, as a people and as humanity. We need connection. We need stuff that's real. We have material concerns and it can be very helpful in this world of AI and who knows what I think to be able to put our hands on something to touch something, to look at someone in the eye or something. And, and so those are some of the thoughts that come up for me. It's all part of this process that we're going through. And in a way, we, I don't know where things are going, but we're certainly hitting some pretty big peaks in terms of technology and the coming. I don't know what's on the other side of 2027, but it looks like we're kind of right up there at the top of that cross of planning before it crests and starts moving down. Is, is my so sense. that's the timing 2027 that's the year that was given as like the changeover year but i feel like it's something that's gonna, it's been happening and there's going to be there's like an, a long on-ramp and then there's a kind of a, a line in the sand 2027 and then there's an off-ramp it's not going to happen overnight although that being said a lot of people have been in human design for a while a lot of my human design teachers have said that they're very surprised that the things that raw talked about back 20, 30 years ago that are happening already and happening so soon. They didn't think it would happen so fast, but it does seem like it is happening. So I guess some of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be like right with us right here. <laughs> and then some of the people who listen to this podcast. What is this guy talking about? <laughs> and has Allison gone insane? And <laughs> because I'm just like taking it all because I've had the experience. I've asked the questions myself and we're not showing that process. So I wonder, one of the reasons I really resonate with you, John, is you are very intelligent. You are very grounded. I mean, I can see that you 
worked in software. I hate the word normal, but like you are a person, you are a human being that another human being can speak to and have have a conversation. And I wonder what you would say. It's an interesting life choice to immerse yourself in something that is so counter the narrative. And if you have something to say to someone who who might be like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I did come from a pretty, I guess, relatively conventional upbringing, public schools and grew up in Houston, Texas. And my father was a geologist in the oil business and just that kind of thing. And but then I got into astrology at an early age and and it just kind of grabbed me. I've always just kind of wanted to know how things work, how people work. I've been very interested in just kind of what what I can know and what I can see. So anyway, I ended up getting into astrology and for years I was kind of doing it kind of off the radar because it's only been in the last five or six years that it's even become something that you can talk about like with other people or talk about at parties or at the workplace mm-hmm. without people thinking you're completely nuts. And so I, I lived <laughs> I lived kind of a compartmentalized life, an open solar plexus life as far as that goes for years. And then it basically, human design kind of landed in my lap through an astrologer friend of mine about eight and a half years ago. And I couldn't, I started looking into it and I couldn't quite shake it. And then it just kind of grabbed me. And I felt like it was really during my Chiron return when I hit 49, 50, that I realized like, I don't have any choice. I'm just doing this. This is like, I, I, I can't not do it. And so now it's, it's been even kind of more normalized, I think, in society and to a relative degree, I guess, compared to the way it was. But if you're just coming into it and I mean, I think I would say that it's an experiment. It's not a dogma. It's not a belief system. It, it may seem weird. The terminology is weird. The system's weird. I know it was weird when I first saw, saw it coming from an astrology background. I looked at that thing with the I Ching, the, the chart, the wheel, the hexagrams, the, the centers. Crystal. Yeah, the crystals of consciousness. And I'm like, someone has completely gone off the rails here. Like, there's no way this system can work. And I thought, oh no, another kind of crazy astrological system. And I'd studied a bunch, you know, not that they're all crazy, but I would just kind of go dive in the deep end and go like immerse myself in it. But then there's, there's something kind of, I don't know what the right word is. It's undeniable or it's it's hard. It's hard. Like once you see it, once it lands human design, it's kind of hard to shake. I do a lot of co-teaching with my partner, Amy, through this kind of collaborative effort we have called the Human Design Collective. So we have a lot of new people, a lot of students coming in who come in to check the system out. They're coming in pretty fresh or they're coming in, they're just getting a reading or they're taking this intro class first and they don't even know what it is. And so we're in that kind of position a lot of trying to kind of convey or to orient people to it. And one of the things that we really emphasize is don't believe us. This is not a belief system. This is an experiment and basically go out there and try it. And if you, if, and if at some point you're like, screw this, I, I don't like this, this is madness or whatever, it's not helping me. We also encourage them to put it down and to walk away. It's right. like, it's just, then don't, it's like, it's okay. But what we, we find is that people, they can't on a certain level. It's like, be careful. I don't know how, if you might compare it a little bit to like drinking ayahuasca or something. If you go in there and it's like, there should be a little bit of a warning label on that. Like you may not be able to undo this or unsee this thing. And I don't know if I'm helping encourage people to look into human design or not, but I think it it needs to be said that it's an experiment. It's not a belief system. And yet once you go in and you start seeing it and it starts landing or resonating, then it kind of has a life of its own. And people don't need to be convinced of it. I guess the other thing is it doesn't do any good. You're just, it's going to land in the body in the person's experience or it's not. And yeah. I'm so glad I asked that because that, I think that is such a helpful and important thing, especially with a system like this that feels impenetrable to hear that, yeah, this is an experiment, not a belief system. And taking it slow too. It's the other thing that I think we try to encourage is take it at your own pace. You don't have to dive all the way in. You can pick it up, put it down. But I think what it ends up doing is it can show us, like we said earlier, it can show us that a lot of what we maybe feel is wrong or a problem is actually not that. It's not a problem. The problems that we think we have may be different or there may be issues that we have to work out, but 
it ends up kind of leading us back to, I think, a greater place of, of self-acceptance and depersonalizes it a lot of it. And if we can extend that to other people in our relationships, it can really make a difference in my experience. It's like we can allow for individual differences. And that's, we have a map, we have a kind of a frame of reference for doing that. But it's like, if we're holding up this frame of reference, like a lens, I think it's useful to pick it up, look through it, and then set it aside at some point and say, okay, now what? Like I had to do that with astrology when I was in my, I think it was in my twenties, pretty early on. I got so into it that I literally could not think it was like everything was being processed through the planets and through charts. And I couldn't even have a conversation without astrology being a part of it. And I kind of caught myself in that mode. And I kind of made a deal with myself that you're going to walk away from this and put it down as long as it takes for you to come back and have a correct relationship with it. And that I didn't know how long that was going to be, but I, I've been doing readings and working with people kind of early on. And people would call me up and say, hey, can you look at my chart? And I'm like, nope, not doing it anymore. Well, why not? For how long? I don't know how long. It ended up being about nine months. It was about nine months. And then I kind of came back to it. But that was a really useful thing to do is just to, sure. to stop because human design is not life. I mean, life is life. And this is a point of reference. This is kind of how I look and at it. And we see this with plant medicine too. Like- I've only ingested psychedelics once in 2023 in a very small dose. And people can't believe this. They're like, but this is what you know. Plant medicine's plant medicine and life is life. And mm -hmm. it's all about what are the fruits in life and what is it creating energetically in life. So I love that parallel. Before we finish, can you, I know you have an amazing podcast, courses, services, we're going to put everything in the show notes, but can you highlight what you are working on that people might be interested in if they're hearing this and going, I want to know more, which I bet yeah. they are. Yeah. So kind of two main areas. There are the classes, the teaching, the courses that I do with Amy through the Human Design Collective. We offer the three foundation courses, which are the three introductory human design courses that take about a year to go through on average, depending on how fast you go through it. They provide kind of the basis, the foundation for like, I would say 80% of the system and the knowledge. So we teach those on a regular ongoing basis and we do them online during using Zoom and I won't go too far into it, but if you're interested, the humandesigncollective.com website has links to all the courses and the course page, but that's it. That's kind of a good way to really get into the system. But the first way I think is, is usually if you're interested in human design, the best way to go about it, it's with a reading. It's what's called a foundation reading. And that's where you can sit down with me or another person who's basically a human design analyst is what we're called. And there are different schools. There's different people who, who have like certification programs. Some people are self-taught. Some people go through formal training. I went through training with the International Human Design School, IHDS. And so I'm part of that formal organization or associated with it. And a foundation reading is basically a two hour deep dive into your individual design, into your, your body graph, the human design birth chart. And all the major themes are kind of covered in that time period. I like my sessions to be really interactive. Um, I'm a projector type, which is about 20% of the population. And I'm also a two, four, like you are Allison and and I like to make things kind of personal and get in there. And so that work I do through my own private practice, which is called Metamorphic Human Design. And the website is metamorphichumandesign.com. And so there's information up there on, on sessions. You can do the foundation reading as kind of the intro, which kind of gives you a kind of a good starting point. But then you can also look at timing, cycles, transits. You can also look at relationship stuff, family stuff, family dynamics. There are specialized readings that you can do alongside of that. And that's kind of where, yeah, that's where I spend most of my time. You mentioned the podcast, which is something we're doing as well through the humandesigncollective.com. We've been running a podcast for a couple of years and we try to get people, our teachers, we've had a lot of our teachers and people we've learned from or people that we find doing interesting things out in the human design community on to talk to us about it. And so that's available on all of the different podcasting platforms as well. Amazing. It's a great podcast. You do get the best people, I think. It's always a really unique 
angle that I hadn't quite thought of before. So it's one of the few podcasts I listen to. So thank you for that. John, thank you so much for your time. I feel enlivened and a little bit more relaxed, just taking another immersion into your perspective on human design. So thank you very much. I'm really grateful. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been good. And I really appreciate the invitation and coming on today. Thank you very much. If this resonates with you, be sure to subscribe so you get all the juicy episodes to come. And if you have a friend who is deep into their personal growth and healing journey, share this podcast with them too. Now go out and experience the aliveness that's here for you today. If what you've been hearing on this episode is resonating with you, you may be wondering if transformational microdosing has the potential to change your life too. Transformational microdosing layers intentionality, ritual, and deep inner work on top of a microdosing practice to create the potential for permanent shifts in your way of being with yourself and others. I invite you to receive my free transformational microdosing guide, which includes all the ins and outs of microdosing, as well as how to set intentions, create ritual, and structure your inner work throughout your journey. I've also included stories from two transformational microdosers. The intention of this guide is to empower you to develop a deep and generative relationship with the medicine. You can find the link to receive the guide in the show notes or go to expandwithmicrodosing.com.